Hello, everybody. Welcome to IntelliCast, a special episode today. Uh, first off, my name is Brian Lamar at EMI Research Solutions. I'm the Chief Insights Officer. Joining me, as always, is Brian Peterson. Hello, Brian. Hello. How are you? Doing all right. It's uh, just celebrated Fourth of July when you're listening to this, so I hope you had a good holiday. Uh, today, we have a few special guests, and I will introduce them. I'll let, I'll let them introduce themselves, too, but um, we have Deb Plaskanka. She's the Chief Data Scientist at Cambia Information Group with Holly Smith. She's the Vice President of Research Operations at Cambia Information Group. Mary Draper, and I'm going to read your LinkedIn profile here because you have a new job title. Um, Champion for quality, <laughs> Burger Queen, Publix Enthusiast which is kind of your soft headline, but your real new job title is Vice President of Network Partners and Quality, correct? Yes, Congratulations yes. on the promotion. I don't think we've talked about that on the broadcast. Thank you, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the new task ahead. Um, I've already been managing our partner network and a lot of the quality initiatives at EMI, but um, I'll be expanding and uh, working with some of our pricing team as well. Um, launching a few new initiatives this year. So looking forward to it. Um, and I'll have to catch up our guests on why I'm listed as a burger queen. In public <laughs> I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts. Yeah, we, uh, we didn't discuss that in the prep, did we? No, no. So I'll let you all in on the inside joke that most of the, the podcast listening world is already aware that I'm the crazy Publix lady. That's right. Um, Congratulations on your promotion, Mary. This is Deb. Uh, you mentioned you were already doing the job. I think we've all learned that over the course of our careers. You get the promotion after you're already doing the work. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Deb, maybe just a little bit about your background. That'd be great. Oh, um, I fell into market research kind of backwards the way a lot of us do. Um, in grad school, having finished all the coursework and the comprehensive exams, thought, oh, I don't need to spend all my time writing my dissertation. I'll get a job and reduce student debt. Um, and got a market research job that became all-consuming. So there's no PhD at the end of my name, but <laughs> uh, been doing that ever since. And I lead the analytics group at, at Cambia. So I'm involved in questionnaire design, data analysis, um, programming, supervising that, and just making sure we end up with good data at the end for our clients. So, awesome. and I've been there, I will have been there 15 years as of October. And Holly and I, who I imagine Holly will introduce herself next, have worked together since the dawn of time at another company. Since first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Holly. Well, I was going to say, I think I'm one of the, the probably only people at least that I've ever encountered that actually, you know, intentionally went uh, into market research. Um, so when I was in high school, I did aptitude testing and that introduced me to the field of market research and said it would be a good fit for me. So off I went to go get a marketing degree. Um, I quickly learned that there was only one market research class in a marketing degree, and you don't get to take that until your senior year, which is lovely. Um, but I will say, had that been my only exposure to market research, that would not be my career today. It was not my favorite class. Um, but I happened to be an officer with the American Marketing Association and our faculty sponsor was um, associated with a small market research firm in Austin and they were looking for interns. So I signed up for that and uh, started the summer before my senior year. So started that before I took the, the class 
um, and really enjoyed it um, and, and just found that it was a good fit for me. And so they hired me upon graduation and I now have a 30 plus year a career in, in market research. But um, I'm just I've I've always been a very detail oriented person. And as such, I have really strong feelings about things being accurate. And as an extension of that, truthful. Um, and I know things, you know, can't be perfect. Perfect is the enemy of good. But really, over the last several years, the data has increasingly not even hit the good enough standard um, right. for, for us. And so um, and that's even after our sample partners have done their due diligence. You know, it's just clear that even after they've done theirs, we still need to do to do ours. And I am very thankful to be working at Cambia, um, which is a firm that sees the importance and the value of thoroughly reviewing data before we would consider it to be final. Awesome. Um, Debbie mentioned you do not have a PhD after your name, but I think that if they did award PhDs for data quality initiatives, there'd be a lot of them in this podcast. And hopefully that comes across over the next half hour or so. Um, that, that'll go. be the focus of what we'll talk about today. Um, at, Holly, you kind of alluded to it that the, um, not good enough is certainly very prevalent in our industry. And so we wanted to kind of get into the details of it. And I'm really happy to have three of you on there whose really job is all encompassing in this topic. And so kind of the first thing I wanted to talk about is, um, can you dimensionalize the, the fraud, dimensionalize the problem in our industry? Um, how bad is it? What's going on? I hear from clients all the time, oh, my survey has a lot of bots. And people, I'm not sure if they're using the right terminology. Um, maybe Deb, you can start off with kind of what's going on in the industry right now. So we presented a paper at a Sawtooth Conference a year ago, or maybe I shouldn't mention that. Anyway, we presented a paper a year ago, which included online panel toss rates that we had found and over like five years from 2017 to 2022. And among B to C, we found ourselves tossing a minimum of 13% up to about half the data and B to B from 16% to all of it where we had been attacked by bots. So I think in terms of dimensionalizing it, no study is immune. You always have to be on guard. You always have to be reviewing your data. How bad any individual study is depends on all of the checks and balances you put into place, how well you've partnered with your supplier to make sure everything has been um, ratcheted up for the top quality data whether or not you have an additional uh, security service attached to your data, there's, there's several of them available. So it, Holly and I, we were just discussing before this call, when did we start seeing things get really bad? And we went back to 2016 when we acquired um, an ongoing tracking study from another supplier. And we looked at their data and it was full of things that we would have thrown out, like just straight liners, an entire country, it was an international B2B tracker, an entire country had straight liners, um, the, well, the data. And just from there, we realized, oh, wow, we have to pay a lot more attention. And over time, the fraudsters, they adapt. So we continue to see an evolution of what we're having to do to identify them and get rid of them. Straight, straight lining and speeding just is not cut it. In fact, it's kind of funny. We have a data set that, um, is fraudulent. Part of the reason we know it's fraudulent is there is zero straight lining in the grid questions. So <laughs> I don't know. Does that answer the question? <laughs> I think so. And, and by the way, I should mention that 
kind of one of the reasons we're all here together is because we're all part of a group um, through the Insights Association called the Data Integrity Initiative. And it's the latest gathering of really smart people across the industry that are trying to solve data quality problems. And we'll talk about more more specifics here in a minute, but um, we're all passionate about data quality and we're all working with a lot of other people in the Insights Association to try to solve a ton of stuff. Um, Holly, anything to add about dimensionalizing the problem? You're detail-oriented, um, you like the truth. How, how hard is that? Um, it is it is really increasingly challenging. The the response rates that Deb mentioned um, for B to B and B to C that's after our sample partners have done their part. Um, you know, so it's it's shocking, honestly. Um, and you know, thankfully, you know, ninety seven percent was was an isolated um, incident. But but truly, in our B to B, I mean, it is generally fifty to sixty percent. And again, that is after you know all the stops have been pulled out by by our sample providers. So it is it is very concerning. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, even with, with our due diligence, um, there is a steady supply of food for fraudsters because of DIYers um, and even professionals who are either unaware of the issue or indifferent. And so those, those folks, even if we're kicking them out of our city, they've got plenty of places to go where they can continue to, to profit um, from providing fraudulent data. But B2B is where we really find it the, the worst, um, presumably because the incentives make it worth the effort. Um, to get in there. So it is, it has just become an increasing challenge and they just tend to stay, it seems like one step ahead of us. We think we found mm-hmm. a, a solution or a way to catch them. And then, you know, we find that that wasn't applicable then for the next study that we had. So it is, it is a growing challenge. And I'm, I'm so thankful to this group for um, pulling together all of these great thought leaders um, to share what it is that we're learning so that we can all be stronger in the end. Absolutely. Mary Rose Draper, you're up. What else? Would you, what else can you add to the to the topic? Um, just maybe um, being complimentary of our guests here today. That your feelings are very much um, all parties are accountable. Um, we are all playing a part, um, no matter what stage of the research process you're in, and identifying some of the fraudulent activity and and working on improving the quality. Um, I've had many conversations with a lot of different uh, professionals in our industry who do a lot of the finger pointing, you know, the suppliers are the problem, the supply sources where they're recruiting from are the problem, you know, clients aren't writing good questionnaires, you know, everybody kind of points the finger, but I think we all have to own what what our contribution is to, um, you know, fixing the problem, helping mitigate some of the risk, and then also just being better about identifying, once we've identified a problem, helping other people with the best practices on fixing it. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of the DII um, and looking forward to how we might be able to just strengthen all of our data quality muscles with this organization. I'd like to pile on there with what Mary said about collaboration. When we were writing this paper a year ago, we knew we kept having the experience, oh, you're the first ones to bring this up. Oh, this, and we knew it was a more pervasive issue than just the ones that we were catching. But we also knew we were too small. We are a boutique organization, full service, but we're too small. We're located in Austin to be able to solve it for the industry ourselves. I was like, somebody has got to get involved, whether that's inside this association, ESMR, whoever. And I was so thankful that even before this paper was presented, 
um, Insights Association had the town hall and data quality, out of which came a task force and then subsequently this DII council to address this, to go, because I don't think, in my opinion, we have to collaborate to solve this. I don't think any one organization is going to be able to somehow profit from they've got the answer and they're not sharing it with anybody else because I don't think any one organization can get the answer. There's so many layers to what's happening with these fraudsters and different people are going to be able to catch them and not. And then we try when we work with suppliers to partner with them to go, here are the details of what we're seeing as fraudulent and why we think they're fraudulent or can you identify what source they're coming from to help them get them out of the ecosystem, at least this time until they reinvent themselves under new identities, um, rather than just say, hey, we're throwing these IDs, just so you know. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that, Deb. Um, one of the things I really like about it is how, sure. I mean, you mentioned it, is that a lot of us are competitors. I'm sure there are other, there are people on part of the DII council that are competitors to yours. There certainly are part of, people that are competitors to us but we're all working together and i've learned i'm learning from people that have done this um it's it's an evolution you never master data quality understanding there's always something that fraudsters are doing or a tip that someone else knows and i've really learned a lot as being part of this team um holly you mentioned um b2b versus b2c and the incentives are higher but would you say that it's easier to catch cheaters or fraudsters or poor quality in a B2B survey than a consumer? Is, is that another reason why it might be higher or is it something else? You know, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure of the answer. I know when we have had a relatively high incidence consumer study, um, like one that we did for the, the paper that, that Deb was referring to, it was about electric vehicles. Well, that was an easy study to qualify for. It was an easy study to answer. It was interesting. It was engaging. And we didn't find any fraud in there or very little fraud in there. You know, whereas if you have some, you know, developer study or, you know, high-end computer study, that type of a thing, it's just harder to, to find quality, enough quality people that are willing to take the time to take the survey in order to have a, a representative sample. So I think incidence plays into it greatly. Oh, absolutely. And I would, I would say also open ends are our best tool right now to catch cheaters. And it's easier for, to answer a general consumer question, open end question, what was this stu- what was this study about, than it would be to answer accurately a high-end tech question when you don't actually know the industry. Yeah, unless you, but- you start asking Chat GPT to answer it for you <laughs> or something. <laughs> right. That, that, that'll be another podcast we'll get into at some point. Um, yeah, Deb, you, you kind of led me right into the next topic. Um, I don't think it's a big surprise to people that um, quality is suffering in our industry, especially we focus on online research, but it's suffering, I think, in all types of research. Um, you, you kind of mentioned a paper that you've presented. I'd love to hear more about that. I think it's called Defeating Endemic Cheating. Um, you presented at the Sawtooth Conference. I'd love to learn more about maybe best practices around um, identifying poor quality. You mentioned open ends. I'd love to hear maybe some more. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And that's available. It's actually part of the toolkit. So if people went into the toolkit and looked up Cambia or uh, endemic cheating, we're on page seven as uh, one of the resources. So we've, we've made this publicly available because of the collaboration we believe that will help people. And within this paper, we actually have a very extensive checklist on, on data quality measures that you can take to uh, defeat fraudsters. So I'm not going to 
read it all to you. But I, I will say that we went through and we identified or, or named five different ways that people attempt to deceive um, or not deceive, but that are not quality respondents. And, and within that, there's different ways to catch them. So the first one we called hackers and they can be caught by automated digital methods without ever getting into your survey to begin with. So whether that's device fingerprint duplication or there's a mismatch on the time zone or the country or the IP address is duplicate. duplicate. Um, and, and that is something about their uh, technology that can be caught in advance and discouraged. Um, bots, we all are dealing with bots. So bots, there's some very specific tools, CAPTCHA, ReCAPTCHA, including those. Um, and the bots are getting more and more clever. So we have seen bots where they take the survey, they generate a normal distribution of responses. They copy information from elsewhere in the program and use it to answer open ends sort of intelligently. Um, they uh, might take, for example, we have MaxDiff as one of our tools. They would take the MaxDiff, but use three different approaches. And by doing that, unless you segment the data, it masks that a bot took it. So it's not like you're gonna find a bot taking a survey one way. They set up a program that produces believable data. It's very annoying. Um, our next, and I'm gonna to get to your open-end question here. <laughs> our, <laughs> Our, our next category that we what we called was con artists. And I will say the DII, we, they have, we have our own names. They were doing this at the same time as we did our paper. So they, they don't necessarily use these names, but um, so con artists, they, they call bad actors, um, people who are intentionally misrepresenting who they are in order just to qualify for the survey and get the incentive. So they might not have used technology to do that, but at the same time, they tend to not pay attention. And those are the ones that we've caught with open ends. So we might say, what was this survey about? And it's a tech study. And they say groceries and finance. Um, that's helpful <laughs> to go. Yeah, thanks for, you know, you just spent 10 minutes doing a tech study in theory and tuning out. Uh, uh, and, and the kind of uh, people that we used to have all the time and we still have are the slackers, the people who are just not taking the survey very seriously, um, lack of attention, and they might fall into red herrings or ghost brands or other kinds of quantitative traps within the survey. Um, and uh, I, this is sort of going on and on and on, which I hope you don't mind. Um, anyway, <laughs> the, the other one, the other group that we have are the professionals and you can cut those however you want, but there are tools that will capture how many surveys somebody has attempted in a day before they get to your survey. And those figures to us were shocking. I, when I requested that data from the um, security service, I was expecting like zero to 10 as the distribution. And it was zero to well over a hundred. So there are people who are just sitting there and, and, and in fact, one person even told us in the open ends when we said, what did you take the survey of? what was the survey about? And they said, I can't remember. I take about 50 in a day. Right. Some of those people and, and the insights association toolkit calls them out also. And you have to decide they could be genuine. Maybe they got laid off and they're spending their time taking surveys that they do qualify for, or they're 
just really doing it for the incentives and, and somehow have set up a system to just take surveys over and over and over and over and over again. Um, but the open ends, actually, I'm going to throw over to Holly to say, what about the open ends has really helped us identify frauds, fraudsters? Well, it's, it's been huge. And, and I've, you know, my personal opinion is, is include it. You don't have to code it. You don't have to analyze it. You don't have to do anything except use it for data quality, but put it in there because at, to Deb's example, um, and that happened to be a consumer study, but you know, it's, what was the study about? And they said groceries and finance when it was about technology. It's like, it's not like we're asking them to write a book and they didn't write a good enough book. We just wanted to know what the topic was. It could have been one or two words and they got it wrong. And to me, the type of person who isn't taking the time to fill out the open end, but is answering the, the um, close-ended questions accurately would take a moment to type in a word or two, you know? So I guess to me, that is, that is just one of the best ways that we can see, you know, it's, it's very discouraging with, um, the, you know, the ability to copy things from the internet or using chat GPT to answer them. Thankfully, there's some technology that's out there that can identify copying and pasting activity, um, which is helpful. Um, but still, I just think that is something, it doesn't hurt you to put it in there. You don't have to take the time to code it, but use it as a tool to be able to analyze, analyze the data. And the other thing is too, you know, as you're cleaning the data, keep it all in there as you're cleaning it, don't toss it out because you might see patterns where it's like similar word choices, similar phrases, those types of things. You sort it alphabetically, you're gonna see things that are too similar to be different people. Um, or not a group of people that are associated with each other. So um, there's a tremendous amount of value, even if it's just one simple open end of keeping that in. And that's the open ends have been so informative for us. And, but what has made the biggest thing too is, to, as Holly was saying, is to see the patterns. And the discouraging thing, we would really like to be able to term these people real time. That would be better for our software costs. That would be better for our suppliers if we got them out of the data right away even before they got to the end of the survey, but the individual data, one record, it looks good. The fraudsters know how to look good. So there's, you don't see it if you just look at a single response, but if you look at the patterns across the data set or you sort alphabetically, or you see the same phrase, just like with a couple words changed over and over again, or you see somebody responding every 20 minutes, they know to change up their IP address or their browser, their device identification, and yet how they're responding is so similar. And we're like, just like, ah. Yeah, um, a lot of good tips there. By the way, the, the document that you referenced that is part of the Data Integrity Toolkit is amazing. Um, it's one of the best I've seen. I think the Data Integrity Toolkit is a must read for any researcher. It, and it has so many links and it's almost overwhelming. But if you want to... Um, get a master's class or a PhD in data quality, um, you probably should download that and go to every link and watch those webinars and read those papers and ask lots of questions because um, there are so many tips and tricks. We could probably sit here for hours and hours and talk about them all. I'm going to go to Mary for maybe a couple more that maybe that she has, little hidden secrets that she has to um, help identify fraud or improve data quality. Um, well, I'll circle back first and just say that I think that the fact that we are breaking out the different types of fraud and the different kinds of the personas of those um, characters as con artists or slackers or professionals, I think is super important for the industry because a lot of times we're having conversations with clients who um, fraud to them is just all bots. Like, oh, we have a bot, we have a bot. And um, if you're approaching it thinking that we're being attacked by one 
um, in one direction, then we're not taking all of these different measures um, to try to prevent them because the type of quality issues that we're seeing from the different types of fraud are very different and we have to um, have a very layered approach. So um, I, I was, I felt um, reassured or it was kind of self-confirming as I read through um, both your paper and of course the, the DII toolkit um, to know that a lot of the best practices and procedures that we're encouraging our clients to take and that we um, deploy internally are some of the same things that you guys are promoting and writing about. So that does make me feel good like that we're on a right path. Um, kind of adding to the open end, we always encourage um, there to be an open end as well. That is probably the best way to identify um, a poor quality respondent. And one of the things like when we're looking at data sets or if I'm looking at a data set or working with our research management team, um, you've made a very good point about keeping the removal data um, in the data set so that you can identify those trends. And even in your paper that was published, there was a mention of also looking at the screening, um, the, the data from the respondents that were terminated. We definitely start to see patterns there as well. Usually I'll um, find that a, a respondent that was able to make it through and kind of tricked the system and gave poor quality data, they might've terminated in that survey prior or they clicked on the link and didn't complete the survey. So it allowed them to gain access a second time. Um, and it's not all coming from one recruitment source. So I think what maybe blows me away the most is if we uh, sort a data file by open end and you find those patterns and trends and you see that that particular respondent maybe has changed their IP address by a variable here and there, but they've also come into the survey via multiple different avenues through different sources. Um, so I think that that tells me that it, it's not one supply source that has um, you know, that it's less at risk or that's contributing more to the problem, um, but that we all, we definitely have to have that knowledge sharing that feedback loop with the suppliers that we're working with when we see that kind of data so that they can update their system. They may not know because the person could have terminated when they had them in their survey, but we identified them to be fraudulent when they attempted the survey through another panel. So it's mm -hmm. not sharing back the information that you see with that panel, but also helping give them flags that we, I've, we've identified this respondent through other suppliers and, and they're giving us bad quality and they need to be flagged in your system. Agreed. We've even seen identical bad, clearly bad open ends, word for word from the same source. <laughs> I mean, from different sources. So it's, it's like, wow. Wow. And, and it's not in the paper that you can download off of our site or through the toolkit, but in the larger presentation, we actually did this uh, research with six different suppliers. And what we found is all of them had issues, but the kind of issue was a little stronger for one supplier versus another. So always putting on all those layers of all the kinds of ways that people can get in is important. I agree with you. Awesome. Um, a lot of great tips there. Um, I'd like to if you could give advice to people, researchers that are struggling with this, um, which everyone likely is, unless you're just ignoring the problem altogether, like the only wanting open ends in your survey, what would be some advice that you would give researchers? Is there, should they download something? Should they get part of a committee? Should they ask lots of questions? I will start off. I'm going to go to Holly first. Oh my goodness. Wow. Um <laughs> It's so hard because the like you said the list is long. I mean, I think it. I think um, partner sample partner selection is important. 
Um, you know, I think it's, it's really hard. Oftentimes you are in a situation where you feel like you need to choose because of price. And it's, it's important to realize what you're getting and to, and to truly partner with that company so that you know that you can trust them um, and find ones that have, you know, they're, they're utilizing the best commercial tools that are out there, but that also have their own tools and processes and procedures and perhaps dedicated staff even um, to this, this initiative, I think is, is key. I think from, from a research company's perspective, writing solid screeners. Um, I think that is mm-hmm. one of the ways yeah. that it's really easy for, for people to get into a survey is when you are just blatantly asking, you know, so do you influence the purchases of computers at your company? Yes or no? It's like, well, duh, I wonder what the right answer is for that. You know, so writing, writing really good, spending the time to write a really good solid screener that helps ensure that you are getting the people that you are looking for. Um, and possibly adding it for a B2B study, adding an industry specific question as a test, um, realizing, yes, people can Google, you know, but that you'll at least catch some that'll either drop, you know, or they'll give you something that it's clear that they don't know what they're talking about that would help you um, throw it out. And then finally, include an open end of some kind in your survey. You know, the worst thing to do is when we get a data set where it's like it's all closed ended, it's like, I don't know what we can do here. We can look at, at speeders and straight liners, you know, that kind of stuff. But but there's just so much more value and an open end. Oh, last but not least, actually, let me add, a, add, I think probably a fifth one to that one is when you are done with all of those algorithms and processes, whatever, you've got to include the human review. You've, you just got mm-hmm. to, it is tedious. Yeah. It is not my favorite thing to do, but it is one of the most critical things to do is to put your eyes on it. Holly, it was great. Um, Deb, I'll go to you next, then I'll close with Mary. Um, Deb, I'm sure you have a couple tips for people in addition to what we've talked about for the last half hour. I'd like to expand on the screener. When you have a screener, I would go in, unfortunately, assuming people are going to try and break into your study that are fraudulent. So do not write any leading questions. Assume even if you believe that you have targeted B2B sample, if you're doing a B2B study, assume you're starting with the general population. It makes the screener a lot longer, but I would narrow it down to your exact target by asking questions that have representative answers of the population that don't, you know, if you want someone over 100,000, don't write an income screener that says that the first item is less than 100,000 and then 100,000 to 125 or whatever. It should start with less than 25,000. It should be representative and then get to the people that you want. So at least you're not tipping off from the beginning who it is you're after. Cause we see that a lot. We see that when we're reviewing screeners that have been written for myself, what I have to tell myself is don't give up hope. Um, <laughs> we are, we're Holly and I were talking this morning before the podcast. We are so encouraged by the momentum we see recently. We used to think we were alone. Or we used to think we were weird and <laughs> throwing out all these, all these cases. But uh, just to see the awareness increase and to see as we come together to combat it, that we might actually stand a chance at delivering quality data to our clients and quality insights that they can act on and rely upon. That's great. That's huge. I mean, we all have to continue working in that direction. So, and yes, attend webinars, sign up for lists, volunteer for the Insights Association. They'll be happy to have you. Um, share what you've learned with others. There are a lot of resources out there and it's constantly developing. Subscribe to things. Um, 
download our <laughs> download our our paper and we've got a little tear sheet you can use your scissors and print out pages 19 and 20 and just cut that out with our tips but but there but uh, you know with fraudsters constantly evolving we have to write another paper that will include new things that this one doesn't have so yeah no, very, very good that's what i've got <laughs> um mary i'll close with you that was a lot of advice i'm sure you have you can supplement that. We probably could go on forever, like I said earlier, but maybe a couple that you have. We could go on forever. Um, I think we spent a lot of time as an industry before we were paying as much attention to quality and fraud and to improving the user experience in our surveys. Um, and I think right now we've kind of, um, the pendulum has swung to where in the design of the screener and the questionnaire, we were thinking very um, beat the fraudsters. And we, we definitely have to do that um, detecting, copying, and pasting, as we mentioned earlier, putting some honey pots in the survey and making sure that there are red herrings and different ways that we're checking for fraud. But I think um, we can't lose making sure that the real, true, valid respondents who are engaging in our surveys are having a good experience, um, yeah. being thoughtful with some of the red herrings that we use. I know that um, from some of the research and research that we've done, we'll look at open ends about how someone felt about the survey. Um, and intentionally, we have a lot of trap questions or red herrings or you know fake brands in that survey to gauge the quality um, of the respondent and the, and the supplier that we're working with. And um, some, of the, some of the methods that we're using to detect fraud are offending the good. Mm -hmm. So we are, we're kind of, we're at a place where we don't wanna chase away the good respondents um, by trying to catch and block the bad ones. Um, so I think keeping that in mind as we're designing surveys um, and then also advice to on the supplier side, um, making sure that once we've identified good respondents, that they feel valued and appreciated, that we don't um, abuse them and overuse them, um, give them opportunities to be better educated about how we want them to engage. Um, I don't know that we put a lot of effort into like respondent education either. Um, you know, they can't answer something that maybe they're not being properly explain to what, what the objective is of the research or you know, how we want them to interact with our surveys. So helping respondents be better respondents um, is the responsibility of all of ours as well. Um, and then I think just finally asking questions of your suppliers. Um, we know that different um, suppliers in the industry have ways of pulling levers and increasing securities or different ways that there might be targeting or pre-screening. We can't assume that everyone's doing everything the same way. So it's really important to ask those questions. Um, how are you blocking? How are you validating? What's your data cleaning process? Um, how are you incentivizing? Just knowing what their processes are. And uh, if you need something specific, if you want them to target a certain way, if you need them to increase their security, tell them that you need that, what your expectations are. Um, because if you're not asking for premium service and you're not asking for the highest level of securities, you might not be getting it. Um, so, so ask the questions, ask for what you want. You can't get what you don't ask for. Um, I think that's really been helpful for for us moving quality, the quality needle back in the direction that we were hoping it goes in. Thank you, Mary. Hopefully people were taking notes the last 10 minutes, right? Um, I'll close with uh, final thoughts. If um, Tell people anything you'd like to kind of close with or how to find uh, Cambia 
online. Um, so I'll start with you, Deb. Any final thoughts? We're at cambiainfo.com and our paper is downloadable there. I really appreciate this opportunity, Brian, Brian, Mary. It's It's been a pleasure. I think the more people that are aware um, and can think about, oh, I need to look at my data a little more closely and work with my supplier maybe a little more closely, the better. I think the better for all of us. So I appreciate it. Holly, final thoughts. Well, I was going to say ditto, ditto what Deb said. And I appreciate what Mary said earlier too, um, or just a few moments ago about the respondent experience, because I do think that that is, is critical. You know, we're trying to write the best screener we can, and it may take 10 minutes. And it's like, shoot, it was supposed to be a 15 minute survey or 12 minute survey. Now, what are we going to do? You know, but but of, of really being thoughtful in that way, you know, um, and managing our clients um, appropriately in terms of their expectations of what they can and cannot ask and the best way to ask it um, to to avoid the re respondent fatigue where you might have someone who started out being a really good quality one and then they're just tuckered out you know, mid, midway through, but they're determined to finish it because they want their incentive or whatever. And the data quality goes down towards the end. So I, I love that idea of including in the process, making it a good experience for those respondents to make them want to participate. So thumbs up on that. Mary, close us with your final thoughts. I think my final thought is that I, I do feel optimistic and very encouraged that there are some really great minds and thought leaders in the industry that are collaborating right now um, to help mitigate some of these risks and solve some of the problems. We know, I think we were talking and kind of joking about it previously that right now we're very much doing whack-a-mole. Um, uh -huh. You know, like as soon as we find a problem, we're hitting it and then it pops up somewhere else. But um, knowing that we're not doing it alone, we don't have to hit all those molds by ourselves when they pop up. There are other people um, in the industry, other um, either competitors or partners of yours that are all working towards that same goal. And so I feel a lot better. I, I can't say I did feel some doom and gloom a year or two ago when um, demand was really high and quality was plummeting. And I'm like, man, what are we going to do? This is making my, my everyday life is far more difficult um, because there are so many more issues than I had experienced before. But I, I do feel good that we're on a, a path right now of kind of maybe redemption um, mm. building some of the faith back up with our clients. Um, and so as we've all mentioned, get involved with your local chapters, um, attend the conferences, give feedback, um, you know, keep sharing those best practices that work post, you know, a win, a success on your LinkedIn page so that we can all like it and then implement it in our own daily processes. I think we're heading in a good direction. I feel better about, um, the fact that we're solving some of these issues um, than I than I have in the past couple of years. Very good. I'll close with something that Deb kind of said is that um, I do think we're all weirdos. First of all, <laughs> you have to be a little <laughs> bit weird <laughs> to solve this problem, to be crazy like we are, but we're not alone. And that's the key that I think all this co collaboration is that there's a lot of people that are like-minded and can help us grow as researchers and um, help us develop different best practices and learn. And so I really want to thank um, Deb and Holly. Uh, thank you all so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom with us. Um, reach out to them if you have any additional questions. And Mary, as always, thank you for joining. And to our listeners, appreciate you listening this long into the episode hopefully it was valuable we'd love your feedback and have a great day
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.